Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my colleague Isabella Kaminska recently interviewed Adair Turner, former chair of the UK Financial Services Authority and now the chair of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, or just INET for short. This interview took place in Edinburgh a few weeks ago at a conference sponsored by INET, and the two of them covered a lot of topics, notably among them a clarification of Turner's views on peer-to-peer lending, which was the source of some confusion and a bit of controversy even a little while back. But they also discussed the role of banks in money creation, the cryptocurrency scene, problems with utopian thinking, the books they like, and a whole lot more. Here it is. I'm joined now by what Martin Wolf once described as the UK's technocrat for all seasons, Mm. Adair Turner. Thank you very much for joining me today. So one of the insights uh, you talk about in your book, Post-Crisis, is that the assumption that more financial activity is supposedly a good thing for the economy is probably not true. And excessive debt is a key problem, especially when that debt is funneled towards sort of unproductive assets such as housing. Presumably, are you, you're still on that page or have you, have you moved yep. the thinking forward in any shape since you've written the book? Well, I think I've moved my thinking yeah. forward in some other ways since mm-hmm. I wrote Between Debt and the Devil. I'm more interested even than I was then in a sort of secular stagnation hypothesis that there's something fundamental going on because of technology, which is creating a difficult uh, environment uh, to uh, make sure that we achieve adequate growth. But the fundamental propositions that I put forward in the book, yes, I still very much believe uh, in those. I believe that if you want to understand the origins of 2008, do not just look at the sort of immediately prior five years in which we saw this proliferation of shadow banking activity, securitized credits, CDOs and CDO squares, uh, all sorts of things that the world really never needed. But actually look not just at that, but at the previous 50 years where we had this very strong growth in the amount of leverage in the advanced economies. Leverage in the advanced economies, private leverage, nothing to do with public debt, but household and corporate debt together went from 50% of advanced economy GDP in 1950 to 170% by 2007. And it grew pretty much every year from 1950 to 2007. And in the book, I explore why that was bound to eventually produce a crisis and why when that crisis occurred, it would create an incredibly difficult environment uh, in which to get the economy going again, which is the environment in which we were stuck really, you know, all the way to, to, to this year. What's really interesting in economic theory, I think, is that as that huge growth of leverage occurred, and as the subsequent, the late in the period development of very complex shadow banking uh, leverage occurred, the predominant point of view of most economists was that this was either an entirely neutral thing of no particular importance either way, or a positive thing because it was enabling better risk management or enabling the better, uh, more efficient allocation of capital. And as I argue in my book, in retrospect, I think these were huge intellectual mistakes. They were based, apart from anything, on just ignoring the fundamental role that credit and money plays within an economy. To an extraordinary extent, modern economic textbooks, at least until recently, tend to tell a story about the role of banks in an economy, which is almost fictional. Uh, It's almost as if uh, individuals start with money, 
they give it to the banks. The banks lend it to corporates to fund capital investment. And I can point you to a whole load of uh, well-regarded uh, economic literature, papers in peer-reviewed journals, where that is the model which they describe in the opening paragraph, and then they explore certain complexities around that. But this is completely mythical. What banks do is they create credit money and purchasing power which did not previously exist. And that was something that a lot of economists, uh, not just Keynesian, but even more the Austrian school, people like Hayek, absolutely understood and believed back in the 20s and 30s was fundamental to uh, the instability of modern economies. And then that gets forgotten and ignored. So part of my book and part of INET's work is exploring what went wrong with economics from about the 1960s on 70s onwards when it moved into a very mathematically based economics, economics which assumed rational behavior, because you had to assume that in order to run sophisticated mathematics, and which ignored the role of credit and money uh, in the modern economy. And uh, that's what my book is about. And I still think it's a, a fundamental uh, thing that we need to understand and a fundamental challenge to a, a discipline which went severely wrong in ignoring these issues. One of um, your concluding points uh, comes right near the end of the book is, um, you know, you argue about, you, you propose the idea of abolishing banks and, and revisiting Chicago, the Chicago plan type of uh, model, which is a narrow money model. Yeah. Do, do you still believe in that? Well, actually, in the book, I look at the Chicago plan, but I draw back mm -hmm. from that radicalism. What I do with the Chicago plan, the Chicago plan, which was presented by a group of really quite radically free market economists, people like Henry Simons, Irving Fisher, uh, Frank Knight, all of these people believed clearly in free market economies, except in relation to banks. And indeed, they thought we'd made, as it were, a category error in treating banks as we would treat car manufacturers or restaurants or hotel chains. They said, look, in most of the economy, you want free market competition, but banks create money. Creating money is an inherently social function. Therefore, it has to be tightly constrained. And they felt it ought to be so tightly constrained that banks should be simply savings institutions where people had money deposits at, but all of that money was then, as it were, held in the vaults or held at the central bank. Now, in my book, I say it's important to realize that even that degree of radicalism is not crazy. And I use the device of understanding why they argued for that in order to explore some things about the nature of the modern economy and the nature of what credit and money does. I don't, in the end of the day, say we should go for narrow banking, 100% reserve banking. But I do say once you've realized that it's not crazy to go for 100% reserve banking, and it's not, you know, that you might challenge fractional reserve banking, where you only hold a small fraction of your assets or liabilities in cash. Once you've realized that there's a complete spectrum there, what you can choose to have and what I would choose to have is a fractional reserve banking system where the fractions are much, much bigger than we have at the moment. So that's why I've argued that ideally we would have banking systems that run with equity ratios more like 20% than even the sort of 10% that we still allow. And where I would restore to the sort of a policy toolkit of the central banks mandatory reserves at the central bank as a significant proportion of bank balance sheets to constrain their ability to create credit and money in the upswing. So I end up with a compromise. And some people have accused me of not being willing to follow my logic through to its end conclusion. But it's a compromise that I think I can defend. So you've referenced technology already. I would like to revisit that a bit further down in terms of the impact of technology on the economy at large. But in this specific um, area of, of banking and credit, I'd love to get your views, given your views on narrow banking now, uh, regarding P2P and a lot of the fintech innovations yep. that have uh, been spawned in the last few years, which really take that kind of philosophy to heart. So when you look at fintech and you look at a lot, a lot of the entrepreneurs in this space, they come from a narrow money perspective. Yep. They're very much committed to this idea of real asset lending. Now, 
I also am aware of the fact that you originally were quite critical of P2P, and I believe the P2P business sort of uh, lobby uh, had uh, had words with you post post your original findings, and you 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 put out a following. You know, I gave piece, a speech. You gave a speech. Yeah. That's right, and uh, and it seemed like you had U-turned. Although personally, no, no, I think it was well less than U-turned. Well, it was presented, I would argue, as a U-turn. I personally read your speech, and I would I argued to all my colleagues that this is clearly not a U-turn. Yeah. This is diplomacy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but tell us a little bit about how that that process well, look, happened. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I was doing a, a, an interview about uh, the macro economy and the Chinese economy and Chinese property. And at the end, when I thought the interview was over, the, the journalist said to me, what do you think of peer-to-peer lending? And I said, well, it has a role to play, but, you know, this is not going to be, you know, a perfect system. And I suspect that in some bits of peer-to-peer lending, uh, we will end up with uh, uh, credit losses that will make bankers look like geniuses. And I still think that. But, of course, like a lot of things that you say when you think you're at the end of the interview and you're not guarded, it ended up as the headline statement uh, that peer-to-peer lending was heading towards a disaster. And the Peer-to-Peer Lending Association then sort of extracted from me a pound of flesh of promising that I would turn up at their association and give a speech in which I attempted to give a more balanced point of view. But that balanced point of view, you know, still involves the fact that I do think that there are bits of the peer-to-peer lending industry uh, which will end up with bad credit losses because I don't think there's anything about peer-to-peer lending which has got rid of the natural tendency of the financial system to, over time, loosen its standards and get overtaken by uh, irrational exuberance. Now, in the case of peer-to-peer lending, the irrational exuberance may have to be primarily on the part of the individuals who are funding the peer-to-peer lending. Though just be aware, just remember, that quite a lot of peer-to-peer lending now is actually now funded by institutions. There's a lot of institutional money going in there. And I would absolutely predict that that institutional money will be subject to a cycle of, you know, increasingly being confident that credit losses are going to remain low until credit losses uh, are high. So I think what we're going to see with peer-to-peer lending, I think it's here to stay. I think it's here to stay in particular sectors of uh, the economy. Where you can do credit analysis on a highly credit-scored basis, which tends to be consumer credit or very simple forms of very small uh, SME credit or uh, mortgage uh, lending, I think there will be a significant role for P2P. I don't think it will play a big role in, as it were, mid-corporate and larger SME lending, the sort of lending at the $10 million, $20 million level to a a real uh, entrepreneur uh, building a business. Because I think at that level, you do need to do some old-fashioned visit uh, the the client, kick the tires, you know, look at whether the hotel's really being built uh, type lending. And so I think it will be a part of the the overall uh, mix of our financial system. I suspect it'll be a minority part and that lending will continue to be dominated uh, by banks. Uh, And I suspect that it will have bits which will do it well and it will have bits which will get into a mess, which is exactly the same as with banking. I mean, one of the interesting things um, about how peer-to-peer is evolving is that um, it it is, as you've already referred to, um, morphing a little bit to the more conventional banking model. We're seeing some of these platforms even operating provision funds and uh, effectively bailing out defaulters via central fund. But also it is still very challenged with scale unless we get that institutional money. And so the old-fashioned idea that it was a uh, opportunity for every man and his dog to do like direct bilateral lending is kind of out the window now. Yeah, yeah. And um, they're competing, if, if they are operating through these platforms, they're often competing with major institutions. Yeah. So is that Well, I fair? think the idea that peer-to-peer lending was ever going to be a big business on every ordinary citizen lending money to other ordinary citizens through a platform which was simply an information platform was frankly a bit of a delusion. 
because you know, most ordinary citizens don't do, don't know how to do credit analysis. Uh, credit analysis is a capability, which the banks you know, often do badly, but it's still a capability that we, they've spent a lot of years developing. And peer-to-peer lending platforms have to do credit analysis. And what they tend to do is do credit analysis, put the credits into pools of high credits, low credits. But at that stage, the depositor, the, the, the investor, is relying on that credit analysis. They're not making their own uh, credit analysis. So, you, you know, I think the idea that this was some great universalization was a bit of a, a delusion. I think the big thing we have to watch is how the peer-to-peer lending platforms with institutional investors migrate and how indeed debt funds uh, migrate. I remember once talking at a conference about shadow banking and somebody described a business that they were running and it was basically bringing in investors to into a debt fund which uh, invested in debt to mid-corporates and when uh, and if the money was paid back, they returned it with interest uh, back to the investors. And they asked me, is that shadow banking? And I said, well, whatever you call it, it's damn good thing. That is exactly the sort of non-bank credit intermediation that we should have. But what would worry me with that model is not how it starts off, but how it could end up in 10 years' time. If along the road you say, well, in order to get some more money, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell the investors that they can have their money out immediately, even before I get the money back, If in addition to the stable investors, which are long-term, I bring in some shorter-term money at a slightly lower return uh, and leverage it up, uh, what you can do, and what happened clearly before the crisis, is you start with non-bank credit intermediation, and then you sort of create a bank-like equivalent, but not called a bank, and outside bank regulation. And that is just an inherent tendency of financial innovation. You know, there are some natural benefits in financial information from a private point of view of running a bank, Mm -hmm. which does maturity transformation and is leveraged. Uh, Those benefits come with some real social dangers. Therefore, we regulate it. But what tends to happen is people create non-bank credit intermediation. And then over time, it gets to look a little bit more like a bank with the risks of a bank. And you could easily imagine that happening with some of the peer-to-peer lending platforms as well, bringing in institutional money, then bringing in institutional money on a shorter basis, offering some sort of quasi-guarantee because I've got this provision fund, so you're not facing uh, the credit losses on an exact basis. They're smoothed over time. The more you do that the more that the investor will think about those as being equivalent to a bank deposit, but a high-paying bank deposit, rather than a real risky investment. How on the ball do you think the the regulators are in terms of uh, keeping an eye on this uh, evolution? Because as these platforms become more bank-like, presumably, at the moment they're all self-regulating, but presumably at some point they have to grab the attention of, of the bank regulators. Uh, yeah. and, and what happens in that sort of scenario? What what would be the trigger moment? Well, that, that's just what regulators have to do. They they have to have enough information to see whether these entities are migrating to systemically important players. I mean, the basic theory is that as long as they are taking the uh, investments of people who know what they're doing and who are willing to lose the money and putting them through unleveraged vehicles and non-maturity transforming vehicles, they're not systemic and therefore they don't necessarily need prudential uh, regulation. They may need to have conduct regulation. And all you can say is the regulators need to just watch it like a hawk Mm -hmm. because the one thing we know is if you don't watch it like a hawk, you'll wake up one day and you'll find something that looks like a bank and quacks like a bank uh, you know, and really is a bank, uh, but not called a bank. Um, I think at least for now, regulators are well aware of that risk. The challenge for financial regulation on the prudential side will always be, what does it look like in 20 years' time when memories have faded and when all the people who went through the extraordinary uh, uh, traumatic experience of dealing with the crisis of 2008 are no longer at the regulator 
and where there's a new, this time it's different story that we've got some new technology uh, which makes all risks go away. Uh, that's when the danger will create. But right at the moment, my suspicion is they'll be watching it closely enough to see the problems emerging as and when they occur. Moving slightly to a different area of financial technology, have you been looking at all at what's been going on in the so-called cryptocurrency scene and recently with uh, the sort of um, new dimension of it, which is uh, the phenomenon of initial coin offerings, which they're dubbing ICOs. Um, There's a massive proliferation of these uh, coins, which are being used as a funding mechanism uh, for startups. And uh, there is a real dilemma over whether these things are securities. And a lot of them are now asset-backed as well. So the new thing is tokenization, which uh, some might say is a, a, a new form of securitization coming back uh, yeah. from the shadows. Well, look, um, I haven't looked in huge detail at the cryptocurrencies, etc. But I think my point of view is more sceptical about their long-term benefits, supposed benefits, than much of the chat that goes on out there. Uh, I think the difficulty is that a lot of people who go into that space are excited because the technology is exciting. This blockchain technology uh, is a solution in, in mathematics to some you know, fascinating mathematical problems about how you create uh, security uh, between uh, decentralized parties. I'm told it's the solution to the Byzantine general's coordination problem, which mathematicians love playing around with. How do you, how do you without a central coordinating authority, trust um, that this, um, this money is what it is? But seen from economics, I think essentially a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are two things, each of which could exist on its own. And then you've got to work out whether the combination is more than the sum of the parts. At one level, they're just arbitrary stores of value. They're like gold. Mm -hmm. I don't invest in gold personally. I don't know how to invest in gold because the price of gold is the price of gold is the price of gold. It's what the piece of price of gold was what people think, right? There's no, there's no logic uh, to it. And I think Bitcoin is the same. If people think it's going up, it'll go up. If they think it's going down, it's going down. It's just completely arbitrary. We've got gold. We create Bitcoin. We can create arbitrary stores of value if we want. If people want to play around with that, fine, uh, as long as they're not playing ar around with other people's money or creating systemic risks. But I don't think that's a value add uh, to the global economy. We don't need another arbitrary store of money. What they also are is an anonymous but electronic payment mechanism. We are familiar with anonymous but non-electronic payment mechanisms, you know, cash that we have in our wallets. And we are familiar with uh, a electronic but non-anonymous payment mechanisms, which is a bank deposit. That bank deposit has your name uh, against it. And so what this creates is a form of electronic value transfer which does not have your name against it. It, 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 it it's, a, it's a, as it were, a bearer certificate, but in electronic form. Now, I can see why um, tax avoiders uh, and criminals uh, and terrorists would love this. I have to say that seen from the point of view of uh, the regulator, the security forces, it's not necessarily you know, a, a great uh, benefit to humanity. And then you put the two together, is it more than the sum of the parts? I'm not convinced that it is. So, look, I think people will play around with this. And I think what will happen is the fundamental technology of some of the blockchain technology and other aspects of what people refer to as, as fintech will, at the end of the day, be used to produce radical efficiencies in the cost efficiency of the banks as they are at the moment. I mean, the fact is that international money transfer has been a unbelievably unnecessarily expensive uh, activity it's a it's a it's a completely you know a digit on a computer system going from here to there the marginal cost ought to be zero and done at scale the average cost ought to be incredibly low as well and that the banks have been charging huge amounts of money for it in the past so i think what we may see here is a set of the basic technologies will produce you know a a a, a radical fall in what the existing players can charge for some very basic functions that the global economy needs. But at the end of that, I'm not convinced that the role 
of you know these uh, new cryptocurrencies will be or should be as big as some people suggest. But some people may I say I'm just an old dinosaur in that, and maybe I haven't looked at it enough. Drawing on the um, on the sort of economic theory that that is applied sometimes in these areas, I mean, what we're seeing now is, as I said, a proliferation of these cryptocurrencies, and a lot of people who advocate uh, the future of cryptocurrencies sort of come from the free banking school. This idea that you know. Yep. All it's not just private credit creation. So this is a world where uh, everyone issues their own currency. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the answer is I'm not convinced that a world where everybody issues their own currency is going to be stable. I mean, we, you know, we we had in the past certainly free banking in the sense of uh, uh, banks issuing uh, they were they were notes. Um, which were meant to have the value of, of, of you know, a pound, but they were issued on the credit of those individual uh, banks. Uh, initial bank money was not underpinned by a central bank uh, guarantee. And um, that system, that free banking system in both the US and the UK throughout the 19th century would periodically produce some just enormous uh, financial crises, uh, which would bring down individual banks, bring down individual cities, uh, 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 groups of people, and would help trigger uh, major economic downturns. And indeed, it was in response to one of the final ones of those. In, I think it was 1907 in the U.S. that you get the creation of the uh, the Federal Reserve. So I don't think if you look at the 19th century uh, problems of, of of free banking, you end up believing that this is a more stable system. Now, what is undoubtedly true is that once you have moved to a system which is fundamentally sovereign fiat money, the the effect of, the, of that depends crucially on the mechanisms by which you control sovereign fiat money. And we know that sovereign fiat money can be deeply uh, abused uh, by governments that overprint it, etc. And there are also environments where the combination of bank credit plus sovereign fiat money uh, can go into a downward spiral of demand as well, unless there is enough radical enough action uh, on the sovereign side. So sovereign fiat money you know, is a problematic system. But at the end of my book, uh, uh, Between Debt and the Devil, the fundamental point I make uh, where I talk about a choice of dangers is I, I think this belief that there's some perfect system out there is just nonsense. And I spent my time at Cambridge as a student fighting as a sort of believer in markets and then chairman of the Conservative Association, actually, at Cambridge, against a group of still quasi-Marxists in the 1970s uh, who believed that there were perfect planned systems out there. And I believe that that just failed to understand the inherent nature of, of human beings who are part irrational, part selfish, um, and that if you attempted to create a perfect Marxist system, you'd probably produce hell on earth. And I found increasingly in my life, uh, with that sort of Marxism having died away, the people I end up arguing with are the people who have a set of libertarian uh, notions, which I think are equally sort of intellectually vacuous in many ways, that out there there exists some magic solution of a completely free market in which everything's going to be the same. I think people should read both uh, Marx's Das Kapital and Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, but I think if you end up believing that all truth lies in Das Kapital or in uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, you're essentially living in a sort of adolescent uh, intellectual world where you've failed to understand the complexity of human life. That's an interesting uh, moment to sort of springboard into the technological uh, disruption that's going on and the sort of core belief coming very often from Silicon Valley that these uh, new systems that they're creating are a sort of panacea for all mm. these global problems and that algorithms will be able to sort all the like messy complexity. I mean, one of the fads now is smart contracts and this idea that you can essentially disempower people from the from the allocation decision in, entirely because perhaps in their in the future planned economy will will have like a an AI or a Google type using all the inputs we provide through social media to to provide us with a perfect planned economy and a new kind of goss plan but you could call it a Google plan right do you think that is equally utopianist well I, yeah I, I think what's interesting I mean uh, Hayek's uh, case for the free market was ultimately a case to do with the 
impossibility of knowledge. I mean, he basically argued that a planned economy could never work because it required a, a, a knowledge of the, the present and therefore an ability to consider the evolution of the future, which was, I think the phrase was, was, was never known in its totality uh, by any person. And therefore, in his, his great writings on the theory of the, the price system, uh, he, he argued that you needed the decentralized system of the prices to arrive at uh, socially um, beneficial results. And there is now an emerging argument going on, yes, but, but that was only true because the computers weren't big enough and now we've got IAI and now algorithms we can sort of do a sort of goss plan uh, allocation uh, which produces a perfection across the world. I, I think it has for instance, it, there are some aspects in which possibilities have changed. For instance, I'm very uh, interested in the area of energy systems, uh, renewable energy systems. How do you connect Winter, intermittent wind turbines, intermittent uh, solar uh, energy systems, uh, rechargeable electric vehicles, and the capacity to do complicated uh, algorithmic uh, integration of these does change the way you think about the role of energy markets. Actually, you could have, in some respects, uh, a somewhat more planned approach than you used to have in uh, the past because of the power of the uh, computing and software capabilities. But if you went for a planned approach, you would still lose the benefits of creative innovation. And the point about creative innovation, the crucial thing to understand about creative innovation is it is not that it works out what to do between a known set of possibilities it creates possibilities that did not previously exist. And so however good uh, you have your, your algorithmic choice mechanism, you're not going to replicate that human creativity, uh, I think. So I think there are some interesting issues here. But my wider thought on this sort of technological optimism is I do believe that these processes of technological development are absolutely relentless. I'm absolutely convinced by books like Brynjolfsson and McAfee, The Second Machine Age, uh, Nick Bostrom's book on superintelligence, uh, that we are living in a world where we are going to see robotics and automation being able to do more and more things, where we will create artificial intelligence equal to human beings. And the moment we've created artificial intelligence equal to human beings, we will then create a superintelligence far beyond human beings because we will be applying an intelligence greater than ourselves to the further development of artificial intelligence. So it becomes an accelerating thing. And I think this has some very fundamental implications for the economy. I think you have to say that at some stage in the next, you know, maybe it's only 50 or 60, maybe it's as much as 50 or 60 years away, we will be able to automate away almost all what we think of as present work functions, be it textile manufacturing, be it manufacturing, be it driving trucks, etc. And that does raise some major questions about what is work and how do people get income uh, and how equally important do they get status and sense of self-worth in an environment where actually I think we're only going to need a smaller number of people need to work in order to create all the manufactured goods and the services that we need. At one level, I'm a technological optimist, and I think these guys in Silicon Valley and elsewhere are on the path to create a cornucopia of technological possibilities, some of which will do fantastic things to human life, like better and better drugs. But the fact that they will automate away the need for work, although at one level it's a great thing, at another level, this is going to be quite problematic. I think this world will naturally be a world of increasing inequality in which the difference between having uh, certain skills or luck and not having those skills or luck uh, will be dramatic. It, I think it will tend to be a winner-take-all uh, world, both in terms of individuals and in terms of companies, as we're seeing with, with Google uh, and Facebook. So I am a technological optimist. I'm convinced by their technological optimism. But I think it creates a pretty big challenge. And the interesting thing is, the person who wrote about this, one person who wrote about this uh, over 80 years ago was uh, John Maynard Keynes in his great essay, uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. He said that when we eventually automate away all work, we will then face our greatest and, in some sense, 
our most difficult challenge, which is how does humankind live uh, as a society and all together uh, with a world in which we don't need to work? And we may find that considerably more difficult than we think. If it's the case that these, these technological uh, um, advances are on the way of uh, displacing work entirely, how come productivity is not like oh, I think sharing I, I, Yeah, I, I am a technological optimist, and I note the low productivity. And I note, therefore, Robert Solow's paradox. productivity. Computers are everywhere except in the productivity statistics. I gave a, a lecture in India last week uh, called Capitalism on a ro- in an Age of Robots, where I directly address that paradox. And I don't think it's a paradox at all. I think what is going on in our economy is that we are um, rapidly automating all sorts of jobs uh, in manufacturing, in back office processing, uh, in uh, retailing. And however, as we automate those jobs, people still need to find income sources. And we don't provide uh, for free an income source enough to have a, a good life. So what they do is, and we don't provide unemployment benefit on at all a, a generous basis for people who are sitting around doing nothing. So they have to find things to do. And what they do is often very low productivity work. So we live in an environment in which in the Britain's logistics, core Britain's logistics uh, system, what goes on in the, you know, the, the John Lewis uh, warehouses, in the Google warehouses, there is a relentless process of automation going on where a fewer and fewer people will be employed there. And simultaneously, we have driving around our cities Deliveroo drivers, uh, Deliveroo cyclists, which, if you think about it, is just a sort of glorified 21st century version of a sort of Indian rickshaw driver of, you know, um, 1960. It's, it's completely old-fashioned technology. Uh, the great insight into this, I think, uh, which I think we need to go back to, is William Bowmole's insight into the economics of unbalanced growth. Uh, he died, actually, this year, uh, but a very fine article, I think, written way back in 1967, uh, and what it describes is an environment where some sectors of the economy uh, are subject to incredibly rapid productivity growth, and labor then has to move, and it moves into either a set of functions that we do need to do, but which can't be automated and therefore have low productivity growth, or it finds marginal things to do because it has to, right? Um, and I think that is what is going on. So. I think the paradox is no paradox. I think low measured productivity growth is actually precisely what we should expect to see when in some sectors of the economy we are seeing incredibly rapid productivity growth. But if um, if technology is ultimately uh, leading to a situation where people are losing secure jobs where um, incomes are predictable, which are fairly fairly high productivity and displacing them into low productivity sort of uh, service jobs um, where they have no job security and where, you know, fundamentally everything runs on on uh, a sort of return to Downton Abbey type of uh, dynamic at the same time as society is kind of elevating luxury products, which are by definition uh, handmade and made inefficiently, as well as the artisanal sort of revival that you see everywhere within the hipster generation. Is there a bit of a disconnect here? Like, fundamentally, to what aim is all that technology if it fundamentally is all about pushing all these people away from these secure jobs into insecure jobs? Is, well, look, is the, technology, the technology of automation would make possible, if we wanted it, and if we could socially devise it, an environment in which everybody had as much income as before, but had more leisure time. But actually, we have a set of social preferences or social structures that make that a result which is very difficult to achieve. So what it tends to produce is an environment of very high returns for the, the clever people who create the technologies or who control the platforms that help drive uh, this uh, a technology with other people, many other people actually ending up with less paid jobs. And we end up with a, a greater degree of uh, inequality. 
Now, I don't think we can respond to that by just sort of switching off this um, uh, this uh, uh, technological machine that we have working. But I do think we have to realize that this is going to create some major challenges. And we have to think about, first of all, how do we make sure that everybody has a good standard of living, even if monetary wages in a free labor market are likely to become more unequal? And secondly, how do we deliberately encourage and value some of the things that you mentioned, like artisanate, you know, capability, um, and also things like, you know, caring? I mean, we have an elderly population. Uh, that means we want more people to care for old people. But at the moment, we do that in a outsourced from government, uh, lowest contractor, uh, beating down uh, the wages in order to put forward uh, a, a, a contract that wins the contract. And so this, I think, will require some interventions in a free market, because I think the direction of change of the free market at the moment is towards rising inequality. Now, it isn't necessarily towards less jobs. You know, fundamentally, if you have powerless trade unions and flexible labor markets, which have an extremely free contracting environment and low unemployment benefit subject to a high conditionality, so you have to find a job. If you have those flexible labor markets, then the system will create more jobs for people to do, and people will need uh, to do those jobs. So I am less worried about the sort of idea that there's just going to be mass unemployment. I think you can avoid that. But you avoid that at the expense of rising inequality. And that I think, you know, people say, but, you know, jobs have always been created in the past. Capitalism, you know, look at the Luddites, weren't they stupid? Well, actually, the Luddites weren't stupid. I mean, if you were a handloom weaver uh, in uh, early 19th century Britain, the automation of handloom weaving significantly cut their real wages. And for about 30 years or so, economic historians have now shown at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the Industrial Revolution was not very good uh, for the British working class, which is why by the 1840s we were on uh, closer to a sort of violent social revolution uh, than at any other time. In the late 19th century, it switched around and a different balance of labor supply and uh, a, a, a technology produced a period in which real wages grew for a far wider number of people. But what the history of technology tells us and the history of economic development since the Industrial Revolution tells us is that you can have quite long periods of time in which, yes, there will be new jobs created, but the increase of inequality can be sufficiently high that a lot of people are not getting a benefit from capitalist development. And that can last you know, uh, in the in the very long run, it'll cease, but the long run can be many decades. So, what's what's the intervention that we can do to uh, to regulate that? People propose basic income. We've had Bill Gates proposing taxing of robots. Are there any of these possible? Well, let's take the idea of taxing robots. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, the the thing that we should clearly you know not believe is that we, we tax things that specifically look like robots with sort of arms and legs uh, and eyes. Whenever we use robots in this debate, we should use that for the totality of automation equipment and artificial intelligence, whether or not it's turned into a sort of anthropomorphic machine with a couple of eyes and and a voice. But if we then say, should we tax robots, defined in that sense is, how should we tax capital versus labor? And I think, and I'm sure this is what Bill Gates effectively meant by that, rather than, you know, a specific tax per head of robots. And I think there is a case that in an environment where we want to create as many good jobs as possible, you know, at the margin, it might be good for us to reduce the taxation of labor, which is quite high, things like employees, employers at national insurance, and tax, if not capital, uh, certainly economic rents, uh, the you know I think it's really problematic that companies like Google or indeed Microsoft get enormous intellectual property rents, but are able often to manage their taxes so they don't pay much tax on it. 
And insofar as that means that company, that countries then have to pile more tax onto income taxes or uh, social security, national insurance taxes, I think that's problematic. So the, the way I would interpret the let's tax robots, the, the real world implementation of that is let's ensure that we can effectively enforce corporation taxes, in particular on the high tech companies which are getting large intellectual property and network rents. And let's make sure that we're getting enough of that to somewhat reduce the weight of taxation on the employment of labor. What else should we do? Look, should we have a universal basic income? Again, my reaction to that is let's concentrate not specifically on the, the, the specific idea, but the general concept. The general concept here is we cannot, I think, rely on a completely free labor market to ensure that everybody gets through the wage that they earn in the labor market a sufficient income for us to feel that they have equality of citizenship in society. Therefore, we will need to have other ways of making sure that people have that. That may involve a non-trivial amount of actual monetary redistribution, but it may be equally important to make sure that you have well-financed free national health services, well-financed free education, good public transport, cheap enough that people can enjoy it, and housing that they can afford. An awful lot of the problems of relative poverty, of people feeling that they really just can't live a good life in Britain today, you know, come down heavily to two things, the cost of transport and the cost of property. I mean, most people on even a low income can afford adequate food, can afford adequate clothes. I mean, clothes, you know, uh, are available at, inc at incredibly uh, low prices today. Uh, even a lot of, you know, um, um, mobile phones, etc., are not all that expensive. What is amazingly expensive in the budgets, for instance, of young people entering the labor market is transport to work, commuting expenses, and uh, and property. And that means that separate from the sort of universal basic income, let's give everybody some thousands of pounds, the issue of how we design our cities, our housing provision, and our transport provision, so that people can live in major cities, even if they don't have incredibly high incomes, I think those are equally important as the specific ideas of universal basic income. Speaking of real estate specifically, if the issue is supply fundamentally, shouldn't credit creation that is directed into real estate, uh, if it does inflate prices, shouldn't that incentivize more supply in so doing, help helping to relieve some of these? I think the trouble costs? with credit into real estate, where it isn't actually funding new real estate development, is that although it might indirectly stimulate supply. It's an indirect and imperfect mechanism. And I think it's pretty clear, people find this very paradoxical, that easier mortgage credit in the UK, I think from about 1970 to about the late 90s, was favorable for wider owner occupation. And then it got so easy that it destroyed uh, some owner occupation. Because what happens when you've got very easy credit, is first of all that the price of houses goes so high relative to earnings that you can only get on the housing ladder if you're lucky enough to have the bank of mum and dad or if you have a very high income early in your career to build up a deposit. But secondly, it then means that those people who've already got some housing equity can use that of security to get another loan to buy another house and another house and another house. And what happens from about the late 1980s, 1990s onwards is the takeoff of the buy-to-let boom in the UK, which I think played a major role in undermining um, owner occupation. Now, you could argue, yeah, but as the, it must come all out in the wash because I drive the price high, therefore somebody goes and you know, build some more houses. But it doesn't work like that because of zoning restrictions, planning restrictions. It, it isn't easy in the housing market for a high price of housing in a particular locality to drive building elsewhere. 
And housing is very locationally uh, specific. Um, so when you get easy credit, you can drive up prices in particular attractive locations. And the fact that that may induce builders to go and build some houses elsewhere doesn't necessarily help. What that can induce is the extraordinary stuff you saw in the, the Irish housing market in the run-up to 2008. You know, an enormous property boom in um, uh, Dublin without a major increase in supply, significant increase in supply, but not enough. And this then tending, sending signals that make people think that it's sensible to build housing estates you know, in the middle of the nowhere in small Irish towns, housing estates which are, you know, redundant uh, to this uh, day. So the, the, the housing market, the, the signalling mechanism, which goes from rising house prices in particularly desirable locations to where does the new housing get built, you can see that going wrong in lots of markets from Ireland to Spain to the UK to Florida, Nevada, uh, uh, etc., so I think this is a good point to uh, touch upon Brexit and, and the rise of populism. Um, last time uh, you spoke uh, to the FT in a long-form uh, format was with Martin Wolf, and it was just before Brexit. The leading quote that, that we used was, um, you said that if immigration were the only issue, I could be a Brexiter. So I was just wondering, A, since that interview, what your thoughts are on the outcome that has happened? And also, to what degree does the immigration issue still dominate your thinking on, um, especially with, res with regards to the um, sentiment that we're seeing with populism and with technological disruption? And if, and if we had these sort of um, welfare um, policies, would they not encourage even more Im immigration into the country? Well, look, I... I, I... You know, I deeply regret that we voted leave. I voted for remain. I voted as much as anything on a set of sort of cultural and, and, and values-driven things. Um, I hold unfashionable beliefs that, that we all have uh, European identities as well as uh, national identities. I guess that makes me a, city, a citizen of nowhere, uh, according to our, our prime minister. But I feel sufficiently proud about that. I feel like getting a badge which says citizens of nowhere just to object to this nonsense. So those are my reasons. But what I could see building up for many years and which I think was dangerously ignored by the sort of British liberal elite as across the world, were problems of rising inequality. And I think immigration was, you know, part of the problem. I don't like that to be the answer. I would love to live in a world of complete free movement of people. I find attacks on migrants personally completely abhorrent because, you know, 99% of migrants are just people desperately trying to look after the economic interest of their, uh, their family, um, sometimes just for economic reasons, sometimes for even more, uh, you know, reasons of avoiding uh, violence, etc. So you cannot, you know, you cannot and should not attack their uh, motives. But as a simple fact... I became convinced, uh, and here I, I, I did just disagree uh, with a, a lot of my you know, sort of liberal economics friends. I think if you, over a relatively short period of time, significantly increase the supply of labor, I cannot see how you will not tend to decrease uh, the equilibrium real wage rate. And I found the various bits of analysis that are put forward by economists, for instance, there's famous uh, articles relating to what's called the Mariel boat lift uh, from Cuba uh, back in the 1990s, I think it is. I found them unconvincing. And I, I, I thought that people who wanted to prove the case uh, for uh, immigration, that immigration had no downsides, uh, I thought they were in, a little bit guilty of wishful thinking about finding uh, what they wanted uh, to see. Uh, I, I began to have that belief when I was chairman of the Low Pay Commission back between 2003 to six, which was just the point at which immigration to the UK was beginning to take off. It began to take off about 2000 and then had a big boost in 2004 when the Blair government decided to waive the seven-year rule on the immigration from the A8 uh, new accession countries to the EU. And I became convinced that what was going on 
uh, with immigration was one among the factors which was making it more difficult for us to increase the minimum wage without that creating uh, unemployment. I also think that it's perfectly reasonable for people to describe Britain as quite a crowded island, uh, not not Scotland, uh, but southern England, because, you know, we do have a high population density, we uh, have a lot of pressure on countryside, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to say that they would prefer to have net immigration, you know, zero-ish, close to zero, rather than at a level which could take our population from 65 million to 75 million uh, and higher. Uh, And I don't think when people use those words you should attack them as being closet racists. I think some of them are expressing a a perfectly valid point of view. So one of the things which had worried me for many years before the referendum was that I thought these legitimate concerns were being simply swept apart by a sort of global elite who personally were unaffected by these problems because it was not their wage rates that were being pulled down and because they had enough money to still have perfectly nice houses in the countryside, uh, you know, uh, even if population density... And to benefit from cheap nannies. And to to benefit from cheap nannies and and, and cheap, uh, you know, uh, coffee, coffee cups. And I think it was part of a wider tendency of the sort of you know the the, the global elite uh, probably the lead readers of the ft on the whole mm-hmm. uh, to ignore a set of downsides from globalization i think we now realize from very good analysis for instance the analysis of professor david otor uh, from uh, mit that although we know from good economic theory that in the long run free trade increases the total size of the economic cake, there are very significant losers from it. And in the US, it does appear uh, that, you know, some of the most dramatic falls on real wages were precisely in those towns and areas which precisely had the industries which were most precisely exposed to more trade from Mexico and China, and that they were also uh, the places that voted disproportionately for Donald Trump. And I think the failure to realize the potential downsides of the free movement of capital, the free movement of labor, and the free movement of trade, and to put forward a theory that it's all fine, you know, because in the long run it's all fine, uh, was was dangerous. Now, to come back to Brexit, um, I still regret it. I still wish we'd stayed in. I, 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 I wish the uh, European Union had given David Cameron uh, more slack in terms of some constraints on immigration to deal with that. I also think, sadly, that uh, Angela Merkel, for whom I have great respect, made a huge mistake in 2015 uh, which to completely open the gates uh, to the refugee flows uh, into Germany at that time. Uh, and I think you do need uh, to have a, a control, you need a control of, of immigration. And that then defines what is possible and what is not possible uh, in uh, the, the Brexit negotiations. I think we will leave the single market. I think there will be disadvantages uh, to that. But given that I think the biggest single thing which determined the leave vote in the referendum was immigration. I don't think Theresa May can come back and say, I've agreed a permanent Norway-type deal. We've got access to the single market because to have access to the single market, even in a Norway-type function, you have to have free movement of people. I think the fundamental reason why the referendum was lost for the Remain side was immigration. And I think the consequence of that is the deal will have to have us outside the single market. I do not think it has to have us outside the customs union, because I think there are two other categories of leave argument, which I think are unconvincing to the point of being silly. Uh, I think the idea that Britain is held back by the regulatory weight imposed by the European Court of Justice uh, you know, is something believed by people whom I think must have been avid train spotters in their uh, boyhood, um, who you know, who you know, know all about every ECJ doc- judgment they've ever been. I just don't think it's true. I don't think I don't think there is a regulatory weight holding back uh, the UK or severely. I, I can't I can't think of a single way in which the ECJ has seriously hurt. Uh, either UK economic performance or our freedom of individuals to live life 
as British people rather than German people. And on the economic side, uh, having just come back from Germany, I, I observe that it doesn't seem to stop Germany being an incredibly successful uh, economic a, a, a power a, a, on the export side. And as for the idea that the UK is going to negotiate more favourable free trade agreements with the rest of the world than Europe, and that therefore staying in the European Customs Union with the external tariffs, that that is holding us back, I think this is just fantasy and nonsense as well. Again, if the Europe's negotiation of trade was holding us back from being more successful as an exporter to the world, why on earth isn't it holding back Germany? All this stuff makes no sense. So I think the arguments to do with the ACJ, the customs union, I, I think these were the nonsense arguments of the Leave camp. I think they had one good argument with which I had some sympathy, which was about immigration. That argues that the solution should be we stay in the customs union we give up these imagination that Mr. Fox wandering around the world is going to get us a better free trade deal, but we will leave the single market and we will therefore cease to be a member of the European Union. Um, one other area regarding Brexit is obviously the impact on the city and the passporting issue and the euro clearing stuff and now the banks moving out of the city. Um, if your thesis in your book is to be believed, then surely fewer financial institutions in the UK uh, are not that idea is not a bad thing. I mean, perhaps good riddance, no? Well, look, I think there are some things that finance does which are, you know, clearly of social value. Um, you, know, the, 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 you can debate whether the price that they charge could be lower, um, but some of them, I think, are doing you know good things at a perfectly good price. Now, maybe I'm biased. I now chair a general insurance company, but uh, I, 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 but I. I I can see no arguments to suggest that the provision of insurance against hurricanes and aircraft crashes or, you know, uh, car crashes or uh, etc., that that played any role in the origins of the financial crisis or that it isn't needed uh, by a modern complex society. It's it's. It's a socially value-added uh, activity. I think life insurance and asset management, we, we need mechanisms but of managing surely Europe, Europe isn't so, going to withhold but, services so to the, the, the big things, the big things that went wrong mm -hmm. in the financial crisis and the big things that we created too much of were leverage, was credit, and in particular the complicated forms of credit uh, which express themselves in securities such as CDOs, etc. And when I said in an interview in August 2009 for Prospect magazine, which I think was probably the best free advertising that rather small circulation uh, a, a magazine ever got, when I said, you know, some things were of no social value, it was those that I was referring to. So there is a role for the city, and it is a provider of services which the rest of Europe wants to have. What will be the impact of us being out of the single market? At one level, you could argue it's not catastrophic. Uh, a lot of companies which are involved in asset management or insurance services out of London will no longer be able to operate with a branch on a passported arrangement. They will have to set up a subsidiary. But those subsidiaries will still be able to have intergroup relationships uh, with the rest of the group. Many of the functions may still be possible to do uh, in, in, in London. And so there will be some movement of people and jobs, but originally it might not be all that big. I think over time it will be more of a disadvantage because once you've set up a subsidiary overseas, once you've moved some jobs, when you're then thinking about, well, where do I allocate you know, jobs uh, over time, do I put more resource in London or more resource in Paris or Frankfurt? I think the very fact that you've set up holding companies in the continent, you've set up subsidiaries there, will tip those decisions over time. And I think once we are out of uh, the single market, the other countries will be tempted to, and in a sense, why shouldn't they, find opportunities at the margin just to design regulations so that a few more jobs and a few more jobs and a few more jobs have to move. So I suspect that over time, I, su I suspect originally in 2019 when this, or 2022, whenever the, the, the actual Brexit occurs, the number of jobs that moves will be relatively small. But over time, I think it will build up. So I think it's going to be bad for uh, the UK economy, but not catastrophically bad. 
For sure, but it, I just would be interested to see how it squares with the view that if the UK is a sort of safe haven for huge amounts of savings by rich people, um, the financial sector obviously facilitating that, and, and inequality being so um, incredibly linked to this uh, notion that uh, the rich don't spend as much as the poor. Yep. Is there possibly an argument to say, well, you know, if we export our financial rentiers to Frankfurt, uh, perhaps we can then revive the real economy and finally challenge the Germans well, look, on... I, I, I th- on well, I, I, think the, I think the likelihood that we're going to challenge the German manufacturing machine is close to zero. Mm-hmm. I think apart from anything else, uh, I, I, I think manufacturing will clearly continue to exist. Indeed, I think that some manufacturing activity is probably going to come back to the developed world, but with very few jobs. Indeed, one of the biggest things that I worry about at the moment is not Brexit. Mm-hmm. I think in, in global economic terms, it's, it, it's important for us, but it's relatively marginal in global economic terms. The thing that really worries me is the situation of countries which have rapidly growing populations and need to create a lot of jobs in a world of radical automation possibilities. I've just been uh, in India, and India is now growing quite fast, but not growing employment at all even though it needs to create employment at about 10 or 12 million a year simply to absorb uh, the growth in the working age population. And indeed, what you're seeing in India is the automation of manufacturing in a world where there are millions of people looking for a job. I think we will see automation coming back to the developed world, but it will occur. Adidas is just setting up a factory in Ansbach uh, in Bavaria. And it's going to produce 300,000 shoes, and it's only going to have 160 people uh, in it. And this is a fraction of the number of people employed in its supply chain across the world currently to produce that number of jobs. And what I think that means is, you know, Britain has a manufacturing base. It's heavily focused on aerospace, British aerospace, and the automotive sector. And the automotive sector it is deeply linked in with uh, the European Union, and I think that's why it's crucially important that we stay within the customs union and we have completely free movement of a, uh, a components within the supply chains of the BMWs and the Toyotas and the uh, uh, Jaguar Rovers, etc. But I think the likelihood that simply because if the city got small, we'd have a much bigger manufacturing uh, a uh, employment. I, I don't think it's going to occur. Indeed, I, I will predict that German manufacturing employment will slowly fall. Um, and even in a place like Germany, uh, while it will continue to be a manufacturing powerhouse, it will account for a, a, a steadily declining percentage of German employment. Indeed, I, I think essentially we will get move into a world by by 2050. The world will be producing all the manufacturing goods it needs employing no more than, I don't know, 3 or 4% of the global workforce, because that is what automation will require. So I wouldn't have a vision that if we had less of a city of London, we'd have more manufacturing. What I think is true is that we would be well advised to think out how having less of our eggs in one basket. Um, and I think if Brexit and loss of single market access forces us to say, well, what are the other things that survive Uh, in a great city like London and across Britain, uh, beyond financial markets. And there are things like like design, there are things like fashion, there are things like the entertainment industry, uh, their film, um, their medicines, their medical services as a service, they are education services. All these other, these services, these non-manufacturing activities other than uh, financial services, I think we should be thinking very carefully how we how we nurture those uh, as much as possible. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that is the end of Izzy's chat with Adair Turner. Thanks again to both of them, and thanks to INET for providing the venue and inviting us along. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Or... Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Show notes for this episode and all prior episodes are at ft.com forward slash alphachat. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. We really appreciate this. It helps other people find out about us. This podcast was produced and edited, as always, by Amy Keene. 
And we'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. <laughs>